From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. California is by far the biggest state economy in the United States, with $2.9 trillion in real GDP, ranking the Golden State's GDP fifth in the world, just below Germany and Japan. If you ask them, most business leaders would likely say that California is actually undermining its economic potential with the overregulation of business. In short, less regulation would mean even more economic opportunities. Most labor leaders, on the other hand, would likely counter such arguments by asserting that those economic opportunities have not trickled down to the workers. In addition, they might cite the fact that only 16% of the state's workforce is unionized and enjoys the protection and benefits of a collective bargaining agreement and that more needs to be done to protect and expand worker rights. The recent spike in labor strikes seems to underscore the rising tension between management and labor. It's an age-old question. Management versus labor, which side are you on? Today, we'll examine the state of business and labor in California with... Jennifer Barrara. She's the president and CEO of the California Chamber of Commerce, and three reporters from Cal Matters who've done an extensive report on the status of labor unions in California. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Well, here's a basic policy question. Is there a need for government regulation or should we simply let the market decide? And if regulation is necessary, has California gone too far? Is business overregulated? And what about lawsuits? Are they, are they necessary to protect the public and consumers or have we become overly litigious? Those questions have long been debated at the state capitol by strong advocates on both sides. Today, our guest is one of those advocates, Jennifer Barrara. She is the CEO and president of the California Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, I just wanted to ask you, uh, your website describes the chamber as, quote, helping businesses do business in California, unquote. So in a nutshell, what do you do? Uh, well, we, there's really two parts to that. We advocate for businesses at the state capitol and in the regulatory agencies. And then we have a compliance side that helps businesses comply with some of our complex labor and employment laws that are unique to California. Okay, so let's so let's get into it. So. Um, let's assume, um, let's talk about government regulations. That's the initial question that I ask. Is some regulation necessary or can we just rely on the market to handle things? Yeah, I mean, I think there is some uh, basic uh, regulations that are necessary uh, in the market and to make sure that everybody's kind of playing by the same rules and in the same boundaries. But uh, I do believe that California is overregulated in many areas um, and there needs to be some reforms. Okay, so, so we're going to assume that some regulation is necessary. Of course, the debate is, well, how much? Where's that line? Um, is there a better way to regulate? I mean, we, we've talked about this in the past about, you know, California, most regulatory laws kind of punishing you doing for something wrong, as opposed to incentivizing you for doing something right. Um, do we have that balance off? 
Yeah, I would I would say we do. You know, that has been basically the nature of the culture is to impose or uh, propose these mandates on business uh, with a hammer of some type of enforcement or pe uh, penalty or some type of monetary uh, damage on the other end if businesses don't do that. And it is a really huge uh, problem for businesses in California, examples that we can provide where they've just been hit with uh, lawsuits uh, for leverage uh, to enforce things. And it is a huge cost to doing business in California and really one of the drivers um, that make it, makes it so complicated to do business here. You know, so let me ask you, um, you know, there are all kinds of uh, suggestions about statutory and regulatory reforms that are out there. I'm wondering, which does the chamber support? Well, one of the biggest regulatory or statutory reforms that we support and are really pushing for right now is dealing with the Labor Code Private Attorneys General Act that's been in place since 2004. And, um, yeah, briefly yeah, describe what that is for folks. Yeah, uh, PAGA, as it's commonly uh, utilized uh, in normal conversation, is a California unique law that basically says any employee can file a lawsuit, a representative lawsuit, on behalf of themselves and any other aggrieved employee for basically any violation of our labor code, which is over a thousand pages long. Um, the only exception to that is dealing with workers' compensation. And PAGA also says that if the underlying labor code that you're suing on does not have a penalty associated with it, PAGA will provide one for you. And the penalty that PAGA provides is $100 per employee for the pay, first pay period, $200 per employee for every pay period thereafter, and then a right to automatic attorney's fees. So it gets very costly, very quick for businesses. And, and, and what it really deals, a lot of this deals with wage and hour cases. And, and the wage and hour laws are very complicated. There's a lot of them, and it's frankly very easy for an employer to trip up, uh, and then these kinds of uh, penalties attach. I want to ask you, though, about you know, some other stuff like uh, a sunset provision on, on laws. I mean, the argument against that as well, the, you know, the legislature is dealing with all these laws that they got to add onto their plate uh, or view of existing laws. They're just going to be overwhelmed. Um, that's one idea. The other idea is uh, cost benefit analysis on regulatory regulations, whether, you know, it be uh, prospectively or retrospectively. Uh, the argument there is, well, you really can't quantify benefits. I mean, what are your thoughts on those reforms? I mean, I think both of those reforms make sense. Look, we have legislatures, uh, the legislators who have extended terms now from what they had before, they're here for 12 years. And I think it's totally appropriate for the legislature to be able to review some of the laws that they passed um, to see whether or not they're working as intended. Um, we've seen that with regards to using tax credits that have an automatic sunset because the legislature wants to be able to review whether or not those tax credits are working. And so in the reverse, they should be able to do that with other policies as well. Um, with regards to kind of an economic analysis of what some of these uh, proposals or mandates cost would be a huge benefit as far as transparency to really evaluate what we're asking our business community to do. There are um, some uh, economic analyses that are done on really big regulations, but there's no comprehensive analysis for any policy area of all the different requirements that businesses are, are being asked to comply with and what those costs are. Yeah, and, and, and I actually have spoken to someone at the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office. They did a report on this a, a little while ago. And I followed up with them. I said, anything happened with your recommendations on how to do, how these agencies can do better, uh, or legislature can do better cost-benefit analysis? He goes, no, not really. So he said, that's still something that needs to be addressed. But up next, we're going to talk about the Chamber of Commerce's list. It's called a job killer list. Uh, despite a Democratic governor and a supermajority of Democrats in both houses of the legislature, if the California Chamber put something on that job killers list, it's usually DOA. We're going to talk about that in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Looking for a quick review of the latest in Valley politics each business day? Then subscribe to the Maddie Daily e-newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. 
Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jennifer Barrara. She's the president and CEO of the California Chamber of Commerce. You know, each year the chamber puts out a list of, it's called the job killer bills list. Um, and the chamber has a track record of success in those bills um, that are never becoming law. It's kind of impressive. I went back and took a look. We looked at your website and, and looked at the bills, tracked them over the last 10 years. You've got a 94% success rate um, over the last 10 years. It's remarkable. Only uh, 15 of the 258 uh, ones you came you came out against actually made it into law. So that's a heck of a record, particularly when you consider you have a Democratic legislature, you have super majorities of Democrats in both houses of the legislature. That's just a remarkable record. So inquiring minds want to know, <laughs> how in the world do you do this? Oh, uh, you know, it's a great question. Um, and I think it is goes to the uh, selectiveness of what's on the job killer list. We are very selective as to which bills um, actually qualify as a job killer. We have an amazing advocacy team that really goes out and educates uh, the legislature on uh, the impacts of the legislation once it's on the job killer list. So it's a combination of different factors. But just for context, I mean, there's over, you know, approximately 3,000 bills that are introduced every legislative cycle. And uh, every year we only put maybe 20 to 25 of those bills on the job killer list. So it really does highlight um, how selective we are with regards to those, those bills. Well, it kind of begs the question. So what's on this year's list? You know, there's different categories of policies that are on the list this year. Labor and employment mandates are always a significant um, topic on our job killer list just because it really is such a huge and direct cost to our employers and businesses in the state who are trying to create those jobs. There's several bills on our job killer list this year in that legislative policy area that either increased um, litigation uh, in the labor and employment arena, whether it's under the Fair Employment and Housing Act or under PAGA, as we just talked about. Um, there's also uh, bills that are in the environmental space that really expedite some of our climate goals that we're already having a challenge meeting right now. And so expediting those goals would put a tremendous amount of pressure on the business community, not to mention costs. Um, there's some bills in the housing industry that would uh, actually interfere with our ability to build more housing for our workforce, which of course is a challenge for employers attracting uh, uh, workforce to California. And then there's some in the tax arena. Uh, we are not big fans of any tax increases to our business community. And so those are, of course, um, almost automatics on our job killer list when those are introduced. Yeah. So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, the, the Democrats control state government for all intents and purposes. So Republicans are conservatives or conservatives or business. And then sometimes labor, too, actually uses the initiative and the initiative process. Business tends to sometimes use the referendum process to kind of get it, get their policies advanced. Um, and so one of the one of the complaints about the referendum process is if you get enough people to sign up to put up something as a referendum, it puts the legislation on pause. And, and one of the examples was with, with, with vaping. There was a vaping law where they spent all this money to get it on the ballot, like, like $20 million. But then when it came to actually get it passed, well, they spent $2 million. And they said, well, why would they do that? And they found that, well, the vaping companies made $1.1 billion during that two-year hiatus. And so they're saying, oh, this is a distortion of the process. You know, the same thing, to be fair, you know, labor unions use the initiative process, just like companies do. I mean, what do you think about that direct democracy in California? Have we gone a little too far that way? Not far enough? Yeah, I think, I mean, making a distinction between the referendum process and the initiative process. First, I'll start off with the referendum process. Um, you know, it is an opportunity for the direct uh, uh, democracy, for voters to really have a say in what policies are being passed in our state. Um, the allegation that there has been abuse in the referendum process is just not borne out by the data. Over the last 100 years, there's only been 33 laws that have been subject to a referendum. And as I mentioned earlier, 
uh, just this year, there was approximately 3,000 laws that were introduced into the legislature. So not uh, a, a high reflection of any type of abuse. In the last 10 years, there's only been five laws that have been subject to referendum. And then even though it's subject to referendum, again, it's still the voters who ultimately get to decide whether or not the law goes into effect. And there's about a close to a 50-50 split with regards to those that have qualified um, and the number of times that the voters have struck down the law or the voters have approved it. So again, not really a high reflection of an abuse on that side of things, um, as has been alleged. On the initiative side, um, you have seen a lot of activity on the initiative side. And again, it's from labor uh, organizations and from business uh, organizations as well. Um, I think that is a reflection of frustration on the ability to really get policy done in the legislature. So they have to turn to the ballot process or it's an attempt to get some type of leverage so that it forces um, a legislative discussion on a particular policy. It's, it's kind of a breakdown of the legislative process. Uh, we sometimes see this. Uh, we only got about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask this one last question in this segment, and that is, I've noted that the chamber recently signed what's called an equal pay pledge. And what is the pledge and why did the chamber feel it was necessary to sign it? Yeah, the equal pay pledge uh, is something that is being promoted by the first partner of California, the California Women's Legislative Caucus and the uh, California Commission on the Status of Women and Girls to really encourage employers to uh, commit to best pay practices to achieve equal pay. Um, it's something that Cal Chamber was supportive of in 2014 when the legislation was actually passed to strengthen California's equal pay law. It's something that's near and dear, of course, to my heart, but it really is a benefit to employers to embrace those practices, to make sure that their um, compensation practices don't have any um, unknown or uh, 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 underlying uh, bias or discrimination of any kind with regards to how they compensate. So we were uh, proud to take that pledge and are uh, proud to be engaged on that effort. Okay, well, thanks for that. Well, up next, we're going to talk about litigation. Are we overly litigious here in California? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Do you want the Valley's future political leaders to be civil, fact-based, bipartisan problem solvers? Consider supporting the Maddie Legislative Intern Scholar Program that provides Valley students with the opportunity to develop public leadership skills while gaining practical knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of government and the political process. To learn more, log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with Jennifer Barrar. She's the president and CEO of the California Chamber of Commerce. Let's turn our attention to lawsuits. Um, one of the most frequent and contentious, uh, particularly in light of California's housing challenges, is CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, People have been talking about some of the shortcomings in CEQA for a while. Um, no one's really opposed to the intent, but kind of maybe the way it's been implemented has been somewhat problematic. Green mail, for example, kind of using it to threaten people uh, to stop projects has, has been an issue. Any chance that that's going to be subject to some kind of reform or amendments in the near future? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think part of our housing challenges and our housing supply is certainly uh, directly related to CEQA and the litigation that goes on around that. Um, you know, the governor said earlier this year that it was something that he thought needed to be reformed specific to housing. We also know that with a lot of our clean energy projects, those are being delayed or held up because of CEQA litigation. And so again, as you said, Mark, we're not opposed to uh, being sensitive and reviewing uh, uh, projects for, with respect to the environment, but the existing framework has certainly uh, led to too many delays and too much litigation. You know, one of the things we, we see, um, you know, in law, and I know you have a lot legal background, so do I, is this thing called nuisance suits. Um, these suits that are filed not really for the merit of the claim, but rather because the cost of defending the claim is just worth it to settle it out for some, for some amount. Um, and in the long run, this is a better way to handle it. But how do you square you know, the fact that you don't want to see real necessarily nuisance suits, but you also want to give people the right to file claims that they feel they've really been aggrieved? How do you square that circle? 
Yeah, you know, I think what what ultimately ends up happening with a lot of the nuisance suits is the attorney's fee provision that drives a lot of those. And um, that's something that I saw in practice. As long as you have an automatic right to attorney's fees, if you recover any even a nominal amount, it really does drive this litigation for any type of claim. Um, where there is a balance with regards to attorney's fees, where either party can recover if they're the prevailing party, I think it really does weed out some of those nuisance lawsuits, but still gives an opportunity for a day in court. And there's other processes in place through our administrative um, agencies, such as the Labor Commissioner's Office, where you can have a claim handled um, without the need for an attorney and an efficient and effective process. We're not about denying anybody their right to court or their ability to go and uh, get redressed for their grievances. The concern is, again, what is driving the litigation sometimes is the attorney's fees instead of the actual harm. And attorney's fees can be substantial. I mean, people think, well, 5,000, 10,000. No, it can be a lot more, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100. It can be a lot. And that sometimes yeah. drives some of these cases. You know, I want to ask you, you know, you talk about the labor commissioner. There have been at least historically complaints about getting cases processed in a timely manner. And so, you know, one of the things about, if you think about the courts in litigation, there's also kind of the same complaint that it's kind of grinding to a halt. Uh, it makes me think of two things. It makes me think of the idea that, well, justice delayed is justice denied and time is money. And so I'm wondering, would it make some sense for the state to spend a little more money and provide more resources to court to move, so it allows them to move cases forward more expeditiously? Yes, I mean, we've always been supportive of uh, the state court system and making sure there was funding. You know, there was a lot of budgetary issues during the Brown administration with regards to the courts. Um, and we were supportive of restoring some funding to them to make sure that these claims were resolved. It does not benefit the businesses to actually have these um, claims just holding out there um, without any resolution. And so that's something that we actually have been supportive of with our friends at the trial attorneys um, to make sure that the courts can effectively work and resolve these in an effective manner. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is the, the delays can sometimes be substantial. And by the way, that's a cost to both sides, right? Yes. You know, the plaintiff wants the case resolved, the employer, they have to, they got the case there, they're still dealing with it. It's still something in the background that's just another issue. And I think everybody would benefit if things move forward. And speaking of which, we've only got about a minute left in this segment, but I want to ask you about alternative dispute resolution. There's different kinds, there's, there's binding arbitration, there's some disagreement about you know whether the people like that. Um, but there's also mediation. And I, to full uh, disclosure, I do a lot of work in, in both arbitration and mediation. I do find an uptick in, in mediation. People seem to think, both sides seem to like it. Um, it, but is there any negative for employers? Sometimes they think, well, if I agree to mediation sometime, somehow I'm admitting that I did something wrong. Is that a hurdle? No, no in fact, uh, a lot of our employers, a lot of our businesses are very supportive of mandatory mediation. You have to have both parties engaged. You have both parties want to uh, need to be participating. Um, and it's actually something we advocated for uh, as a part of legislation that was passed dealing with the expansion of family leave to small employers to have them participate in a mandatory mediation program with the department so that you avoid the cost of litigation and you can actually come to an early resolution. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I do it. I'm a big believer in, in mediation and that process. Well, up next, I'm just wondering, is there reason to be optimistic that maybe things are changing in terms of the political climate in Sacramento? That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Want to stay current on the major political stories in your city, your county, and the San Joaquin Valley? Follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with Jennifer Barrara. She's the president and CEO of the California Chamber of Commerce. You know, it's been noted uh, that you were part of the changing of the guard uh, of the highest levels of California's most powerful political institutions. 
For example, both you at the Chamber of Commerce and the lead now at the California Federation of Labor that represents labor, uh, until recently were both run by men, led by men. Now they're both led by women. So I'm just wondering, does that pretend a new era in California politics or in state politics? Um, or am I reading too much into this? Um, you know, it is interesting how many uh, kind of heads of different associations and trade organizations have changed over in the last few years. And I think it absolutely will change uh, how politics are done to some extent. Uh, you know, I uh, my mentor, Alan Zarenberg, who was here for many years, uh, had a perspective. I have a, a similar perspective, but I'm sure I'll do things in a different way. Um, I am assuring uh, that it's the same with uh, Lorena Gonzalez over at the Labor Federation, that she has a different perspective than her predecessor. So I think naturally um, it's going to change the way in which things are done, but how it is uh, changing and what that looks like, I couldn't tell you yet. Yeah, well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Alan Zarenberg. He was the former uh, chamber president and CEO. I had met I had met him in the past, a very nice gentleman. Um, he was known for building diverse coalitions uh, with like-minded business interests and often cross party lines, frankly, um, to get things done, to find solutions and compromise. I was struck, he unfortunately, he had retired and shortly thereafter he was uh, had an untimely passing and it really affected a lot of people at the state capitol. And it was I was struck by the remembrances uh, that people had of him. And I just wanna read a few of those to you. You know, Robbie Hunter, who is the retired leader of the State Building and Construction Trades Council of California, a true labor leader said, quote, he was a genuine person that did care about working people, unquote. Uh, Anna Montesantos, who is a Democrat advisor to several governors, you know, Gavin Newsom, Jerry Brown, Arnold Schwarzenegger, she considered him a mentor. And uh, Governor Newsom said, quote, a fair and decent man to his core, Alan always strived to build relationships and build across, across the board an increasingly rare feat. Um, you know, is there something maybe we can all learn by the way Alan Zarenberg approached politics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was certainly, uh, I would say, one of a kind, uh, a huge mentor to me, but his approach to things is something that I think is instructive. Uh, and, and another, you know, thing that I will try to mirror in my leadership here at Cal Chamber, he really put a ton of time and effort into developing relationships, making sure that he was a trusted resource for people, um, that he was credible. And I think those relationships and the effort he put into it is really reflective of how successful he was um, and able to get things done. Um, and the comments that you heard from the diversity of the different groups and uh, 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 their backgrounds, I think really reflects again, his ability to, uh, to, to make those connections in the different groups and to, to ultimately build those coalitions. You used to call it the golden age of California politics. It was a day when you know, Senator Maddie, or our institute's named after, and, and Willie Brown, the self-described Ayatollah of the Assembly, strong Democratic leader, got things done. Um, they cut deals. People, I think, because we've been in this politically polarized environment for so long, forget that you know back in the 1990s and earlier, things were getting done. People were crossing the, you know, crossing the aisle and finding solutions. And certainly one of the things we do at the Maddie Institute is really support that idea of of working out these problems together. Now, I want to I want to end with one last question. We've got a minute left. I'm going to ask you about this. It's, you know, it's kind of difficult because the states kind of have to address kind of two issues at once. You've got this negative perception uh, about California in the eyes of some business leaders, but you've also got you know what Governor Jerry Brown once referred to as California's two-tier economy. How do you create a policy that really meets you know addresses both of those concerns? I think it's it's really what you just said and what we kind of talked about over this episode. It is 
finding um, the ability to reach across the aisle, to reach across those different parties and find common ground solutions. Too many times we see these mandates being proposed that I would uh, argue don't really take into consideration a lot of the business concerns or interests. And so being willing to have those discussions and craft policy on a more moderate ground approach will really kind of change the the narrative of the business climate here in California, but it will also address kind of our economic challenges that we have. And so really finding that moderate ground and having those discussions is what we need to do. I want to thank Jennifer Barrar, the, Ch the Chamber CEO and President for joining us. Really appreciate her being here. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can sign up for our free e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about today's episode of the Maddie Report, please visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Up next, what's the role of unions in the 21st century? Are they a relic of a bygone era, or do they still have a role to play? In short, would a resurgent labor movement address income inequality, or would it impede economic growth and restrict job opportunities? And what about the role of labor unions in the political process? Should they be treated like any other special interest group, in this case, advancing the workers' interests? Or is unions' political activity a threat to the democratic process? Finally, what's the role of California's labor movement going forward? We'll talk to three reporters from Cal Matters who recently co-authored a series of articles on the current and future role of unions in California. Those conversations in a moment. Welcome. Income inequality, the income gap between the highest paid executives and lowest paid workers has never been greater. The issue is more pronounced in California, where there's a yawning economic divide between coastal and inland counties and between rural and urban communities. In fact, in California, one of the most expensive states in the nation, has a workforce where by 2021, one third of the workforce was making $15 an hour or less. A recent survey found that 70% of Californians say the gap between the rich and the poor is only getting larger. Could labor unions that negotiate wages and benefits on behalf of workers be the answer? The majority of Californians seem to think so. Eight in 10 California adults completely or somewhat agree that it's important for workers to organize so employers don't take advantage of them. Our guest is Jesse Bedane, a reporter with Cal Matters, who recently did a series of articles on the role of unions in the 21st century. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks for having me. So how are unions perceived um, in California generally? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in 2020, 65% uh, of the California public approved of unions, which is about 10% below um, the approval rate of the 1950s when unions were at their peak. But today, unions are still perceived as largely pale, stale, and male. They're associated with old manufacturing jobs that were largely dominated by white men, um, white working class men in the, in the middle of the last century. 
um, and, and unions still haven't been able to get over the kind of hump and into the 21st century, um, uh, even though they have a high approval rating. Yeah, and, and the workforce obviously is changing, right? It's, it's, it's younger, it's more diverse, and if, it, if unions have a reputation of being pale, male, and stale, that, that, that's a problem. Exactly. Um, so um, so what, have, what types of workers are in unions? Are they predominantly, I assume a lot in the public sector, um, private sector quite a bit less, I would assume. Uh, exactly. So if someone wanted to, to, to form a union, let me ask you this question. Uh, they want to form a union. How would they go about doing that? Unions typically start when workers uh, see problems in their workplace, and whether that's low wages or poor health care or bad safety, and they start talking to each other. The workers we spoke to started, you know, talking at work and after work and uh, deciding what they wanted to do about it, and then would often go and get help from uh, a local union that maybe represents workers that they, <laughs> in their sim similar industry, and then um, once they get 30% of the workers' signatures saying that they want a union, um, the National Labor Relations Board confirms that they can go forward with an election. And if a majority of the workers vote for a union, then um, the union's created and they can then negotiate uh, a contract that will kind of set the bar for the standards of work. Yeah, and, and that and that 30% is just a rule the NLRB has created before they get involved. Um, but it also says something about you know, unions, as well as the NLRB, the government agency, doesn't want to get involved. If, if two workers out of 100 want a union, they want to show that there's a substantial number of people that want a union. And I've also heard that the statement uh, said that the best union organizer is a bad manager. Um, and I think that says a lot about, you know, why people do form unions. It's, it's typically, it's not a union coming into a workplace, but rather workers themselves getting together and deciding that, that they want a union to correct the situation. But you know, you hear unions, you know, being you know, you know, big labor or you know, union leaders being union bosses. It kind of sounds kind of threatening and and you know, intimidating. But you report that you know, in reality, labor unions, particularly in the private sector, have been declining for years. What are the numbers? Yeah, in California in the 1950s, at the peak, um, about 40% of the workers were unionized, and over the the last you know, 60, 70 years, that has declined to 14% in 2018, with a slight uptick in 2020 to 16%, but a, a very steep decline. So a huge proportion of California workers haven't had the same opportunity that those workers in the 1950s had to mm -hmm. negotiate on their behalf in California. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, it's, it's some people would say it's, it's political. You know, a lot of people point to Reagan and, and, and the PADCO strike, the air traffic controllers. But really, it, it's, it's more than that, right? It, it's, it's the changing, you know, economy, you know, going from manufacturing to service, uh, for example. You know, the more uh, diverse workforce. Um, it, it's things that the workforce, workplace is changing. And so unions had a bit of a challenge keeping up with that, it seems. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of jobs have been shipped overseas, jobs that were typically union jobs. Um, unions would say that businesses have gotten better at stopping union drives um, and businesses would say that unions are losing relevancy. Um, and yeah. You, you know, you, you, you often hear that argument that, you know, unions were good in the past, but they're no longer no longer really essential. Um, but, you know, when we come back, we're going to talk about the erosion of the middle class. It's become an increasingly worrisome trend. You know, is the decline of unions part of that, uh, the reason for the erosion of the middle class? And if so, could a resurgent labor movement um, close those gaps? Or would more unions impede economic growth and restrict job opportunities? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So are unions a good thing or a bad thing? I guess it depends who you ask. 
Uh, we're talking with Jesse Bedane with uh, Cal Matters, an award-winning nonpartisan nonprofit uh, journalism venture uh, committed to explain California politics, how it works, and why it matters. So, Jesse, I wanted to ask you about the decline of unions. Uh, has that contributed to the uh, nation's growing income inequality? And would union membership uh, in the private sector help shrink that wealth gap? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there aren't many studies on it, but the ones that do exist, one from Princeton in particular, that used new data from the last century, found that uh, the decline of unions contributed to about 10% at least of the wealth gap that we now see in California. Um, and another study found that uh, the decline of unions uh, widened the gap between male workers by 33%, between low and high wage workers, and 20% for women. Um, and that's largely in part because unions, if you imagine the finances in a state as a pie, um, unions help spread the pie more to the workers um, than just to the to the C-suite. Yeah, um, Samuel Gompers, one of the uh, one of the founders of the American Federation of Labor, was once asked in, in front of Congress what what unions wanted, and his response was very pithy. It was one word. He said more, <laughs> and I think that really sums it up. Right. They want a bigger slice of the pie. It was interesting that the uh, California Future of Work Commission just issued a report, and they said that uh, for low wage workers, having a union will increase their you know, economic situation by 39% as opposed to getting a college degree, which would increase it 33%. So you could argue that unions have a bigger impact economically on workers than college than getting a college degree. Um, you know, I'm just wondering what effect union has though on, on like issues like job security and um, safety uh, in the workplace. Do they have a big impact that way? They do, yeah. Um, just taking, for example, some you know hotels during the pandemic, um, that are represented by uh, Unite Here, which is a, a union in part, in part that has a local in San Francisco. And um, many of those workers were let go at the start of the pandemic, but their uh, union contract stipulated that they needed to be the first ones rehired when the hotel started rehiring. So there's uh, unions really focus on keeping workers um, at work, even if they have to leave, um, they get priority for coming back. So it's been- yeah, seniority plays a big role in it, obviously. Um, unions like seniority, I think it's an objective way as opposed to relying on, on a manager's subjective opinion. That's what unions would say. Um, the other thing, too, is that there is a difference in termination and discipline. In union situations, right, that's something called just cause. There has to be a good reason. In a non-union situation, the legal standard is what's something called employment at will, which means the employer can do it for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. So it's a pretty big difference in terms of job security. And in terms of, I think I read in your report that in terms of filing safety complaints, um, more likely, if you're a union member, more likely that you'll file a complaint with OSHA than if not. I guess I, I guess you maybe some of those non-union workers are worried about retaliation. Yeah, the, the union workers don't have to worry about retaliation as much, but also unions offer that support network of, I, I want to file an OSHA complaint and the union can help a worker to do just that. Yeah, yeah, they do provide that additional protection. But, you know, companies would argue that, that unions just increase costs, uh, impede profits and growth, and they're going to limit opportunities. So, you know, the argument is you don't need unions and, and or that unions are a thing of the past. Um, is that true? Well, if you have a union that's that's demanding higher wages and better health care, there's inevitably going to be a cost to it. It's just how how bad the cost will be and how much it will impact the business. And the studies that we, we have looked at show that um, there isn't 
a huge cost, but it does impact, say, job growth by about 4%, for example, um, uh, and can pull money certainly out of the, the business's coffers. Um, for small businesses, that's a much bigger concern, and unions tend to avoid very small businesses. Um, but for larger businesses, it doesn't have a, uh, an enormous impact. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, too, if, if unions ask for too much, they price themselves out of the market. A good example, Frank, if you look at, at, at uh, uh, retail food, right? all the, now the self-checkouts, you know, to, to the extent that the wages are too high, the companies are going to look for other ways to, to automate to, to save those costs. We've only got about 45 seconds left in this segment, but I want to ask you, you know, you've reported that unions aren't all bad for, for business. How so? Yeah, that was my colleague, Grace uh, Gaudet, who did a fantastic job on that. Um, what she found was that unions in some cases, and this was a study come out, coming out of Europe and some examples in California, can actually support communication between the employer and the employees, um, which can just facilitate a more efficient workplace um, generally. So that has actually worked in some businesses in California and certainly worked in, in some businesses in, in Europe. Yeah, it, it's sometimes it's if you have an internal system, a way to deal with your complaints, you don't file lawsuits. Well, I want to thank Jesse Bedane with CalMatters for joining us. Up next, unions have long been involved in the political process, sometimes indirectly by advocating for employee uh, legislation, pro-employee legislation, some, sometimes directly by asking for increased wage and benefits for public sector workers. Should they be active in the political arena? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has been able to highlight San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, and problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Some argue that unions' influence subverts the political process. Others argue that unions, like public sector unions, are no different than any other special interest group, like a corporate uh, political action committee. We're talking with Judy Lynn, a reporter with Cal Matters, who recently co-authored a series of articles of, on unions in the 21st century. Uh, welcome to, to the Matter Report, Judy. Um, Good to be here. So I want to ask you, you know, labor unions are a major influence at the state capitol, for sure, are spending money uh, primarily to help Democrats, and then when Democrats are elected to get pro-labor legislation. So let's talk about union spending and political, political activity. Uh, what are the numbers? Yeah, let's start at a really high level. You know, last year, if you look at the National Institute on Money in State Politics, um, they poured in about $123 million into local uh, state political campaigns. Um, now, to break that down a little bit, you know, at the state legislative level, it was $16.3 million. Um, if you look back at some of the proposition, the major fights, um, Prop 22, um, when the gig companies like Uber and Lyft put up a lot of, and DoorDash put up a lot of money to overturn um, uh, AB5. Uh, the the um, it was kind of a it was a kind of a, a, a redefinition of what an employee was, and unions were very involved in that. And you do see that on the propositions. Unions are they're always putting a lot of money in these things. Yes, it's 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 all about uh, political influence. You know that there's uh, an effort that that. You know, Art Pulaski, the um, leader of the California Labor Federation, which is like the umbrella organization, mm -hmm. like the Association for Unions, right. you know, he indicated like it's always good to go to um, a business or a business group 
and knowing that you've got friends in powerful places. You know, he 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 admits that. Yeah, yeah, and he he just stepped down. He's going to be replaced. It looks like um, by a, a current uh, assembly member, uh, a person. And we'll see if that happens. But um, you know, organized labor uh, has a big influence at, at the state capitol. Um, you know, a lot of this legislation that passes through like the California Teachers Association, um, they have a big influence. Absolutely. You know, they're, you know, they're, uh, mantra is to empower workers. And so, you know, you, you see uh, gains in the legislature to provide overtime for farm workers, uh, mandatory paid sick leave, you know, uh, increased parental leave benefits. Um, and, and look, the, the biggest one of all so far was uh, the, the labor's ability to cajole Jerry Brown to go with the $15 hour minimum wage, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that was a tremendous win. And then they're, and they're, they're always pushing, they're pushing that agenda, um, you know, for, for workers. Let me ask you this though. There was um, a recent uh, decision concerning a uh, public sector unions. Um, there was something in the law called fair share that, you know, if you were a public employee and a union was representing you, you had to pay your fair, you don't have to join the union, but you had to pay the fair share of that union's work for you. Um, recently, the, this more conservative Supreme Court said, no, no, that's not constitutional. That's a violation of those employees' free speech rights. A lot of people thought, well, that means it's dues are voluntary, which means that, gosh, unions are going to lo lose money and they're going to lose influence. Has that happened? Not at all. The, the conservative dream to squash out uh, public sector unions did not come to pass here in California. I know some numbers went down in Wisconsin when um, the governor there um, did the uh, right to work um, movement. But um, here in California, it didn't it, it was uh, did not come to pass. Um, in fact, you know, events overtook things. Uh, I, 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 I talked about um, AB5, you know, the employment status, the, the labor in around 2018, 19 was really able to rally around uh, this issue and, and galvanize uh, gig workers just as uh, inequality became, you know, front of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, we only, we'll have about uh, 30 seconds or so left, but I'm going to ask you this. You know, when you survey state and local governments, unions are very active at, at that level. Which public sector unions are the most effective or seem to have the most clout uh, when it comes to improving members' wages and conditions of employment? Oh, wow. I would say there's essentially two buckets. There's the public sector unions, you know, think of CT, uh, California Teachers Association, mm -hmm. you know, police unions, firefighters. And then there's the bucket of, of labor uh, unions serving private sector workers. And then there's the mix in between. Um, they all have their strengths. And, uh, you know, right now, SEIU has been making a big play to uh, include improve wages and conditions for fast food workers. You're seeing that uh, front and, and center in 2022. And you're going to see more of that, I'm sure. Hey, I want to thank Judy Lind uh, for, for joining us. Up next, what's the future of unions in California? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, to state the obvious, the workplace is changing in many ways. First of all, we've got a more diverse workforce. Secondly, traditional sectors like manufacturing have declined as a result of foreign competition. And third, we have entirely new sectors like app-based gig work and online retail that have grown exponentially. Have unions adopted, adapted to this uh, growing and changing economy and changing workforce? Our guest is Grace Getty, um, a reporter with CalMatters. So um, Grace, I wanna ask you about, 
you know, there's a lot of talk about employees and independent contractors. There have been some legal issues around that recently in California. So just to get things straight for folks, what's the difference between an employee and an independent contractor? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So a lot of legal protections and rights are bundled with full employee status. So things like minimum wage, things like overtime, workers' compensation, um, health-related benefits, and independent contractors, for the most part, do not are not entitled to those benefits. They work a little bit differently. They can potentially, you know, do business with several different employers. Generally, they have more flexibility, but they lack this kind of bundle of rights that legal employees are are due. Yeah, I mean, when I try to explain this to, to students, because I teach a course in, in, in employment law, is I say it's it's A to B. If there if there's an arrow between A and B, in other words, they're telling you how to get to point B. That's an employee. If there's just in a week, I want to see you at point B, i.e., the backyard done. That's an independent contractor. It's kind of a simple way, kind of a right to control, simple way to kind of understand the concept. You know, in 2019, the the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, expanded the definition of who qualifies as quote unquote an employee. Um, later that year, that decision was actually codified in the state law, signed by the governor in a bill called AB5, an infamous bill, um, just to sum. Um, what did the court's decision and the legislature's actions mean in practical terms for California workers? Yeah, so the court's decision came up with a three kind of, a three-pronged test for who should be considered an employee. And one of the prongs was, you know, is, is this worker who is maybe currently an independent contractor doing work that falls outside of the company's normal business. And that had kind of big implications because say if you're a driver for a gig company like Uber, driving is not outside of Uber's normal business, right? So this test um, based on how, you know, lawyers and legal academics were understanding it would have shifted all of these folks who are currently independent contractors into being legal employees. Yeah, um, and, and that's it's, it's it's a huge issue, and and actually it prompted a lot of the transportation companies, the app companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart. They're kind of upset by this, so they put Prop 22 on the ballot. They spent 200 million dollars. It's the most anyone's ever spent on a proposition to basically over overrule it, change that. Um, not surprisingly, um, it won uh, on the ballot. What did Prop 22 do? Yeah, so Prop 22. Basically, after the passing of this law, which you just mentioned, AB5 kind of potentially turned all these independent contractors into employees. Um, Prop 22 basically carved out that for gig workers and turned them back independent into independent contractors and then added a few benefits that they didn't previously have. So gig companies committed to paying drivers, for example, 120% of minimum wage during their quote engaged time when they're actively transporting a passenger. Now, a lot of time drivers are on the road, they're not actively transporting a passenger. They're maybe traveling to go pick someone up or waiting for someone to get to their vehicle. But so that, was, is, a big, that was a big issue, right? That, that, that downtime when they're not being paid was, was a big issue for these, for these drivers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so they did they did a few other things to kind of give it's kind of like independent contractor plus. Right. There, there are a few extra things that they've added on for these special work, kind of a third classification of workers. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was, I think, accident insurance. Uh, I think there was some healthcare subsidies, some new um, public safety protections um, that got bundled in with this. And then, you know, they also 
in Proposition 22, it was, um, they added the rule that it would take a seven-eighths majority. Yeah, of the that's the thing. That's the thing that really like, wow, that's a super, super majority. Listen, we've only got about three seconds left in the segment. I want to ask you this, you know, Prop 22 has already been challenged. One court said it's, you know, unconstitutional. This is an ever-changing legal landscape. What's the future of unions in this new environment? It's a great question. Yeah, I think both sides, both, you know, labor and the companies are waiting to see what happens with this court case. And that may change where, you know, what happens to gig workers in the coming years. Certainly, there have been a lot of, um, you know, threatened strikes in the past month, contract negotiations. There's certainly a lot happening in labor in California right now. So we'll have to see what the future holds. That's a good way to end it. I want to thank our guest, Grace Getty with Cal Matters, for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can log on to the Maddie website or one of, one of our social platforms to learn more. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about today's episode of the Maddie Report, please visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.